And today's uh, scripture lesson is from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who being in, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The word of the Lord. Does it bother you to stop that reading at verse 8 like it bothers me? We like the happy endings, don't we? We really would rather move on to that wonderful exaltation of Christ. But Lent demands that we stop on Good Friday. And our observance of Lent means we stop at verse 8. I want to share something with you that I've just learned recently in my own pilgrimage about suffering. And I've discovered that suffering is as often about loss as it is about added pain and sorrow. And I'll tell you how I learned this. Two years ago, I was asked to address the international leadership of InterServe, the agency that I'm still associated with. And I was asked to speak on a rather abstruse topic a holistic understanding of suffering in the context of mission. And uh, quite apart from not knowing what they meant by that, I refused the topic. And I said to them, what can a Canadian ever tell anybody about suffering? I've never been tortured for my faith. I've never been imprisoned. I've never been kicked out of my family. I've never been oppressed. I've never had all the things that most of my colleagues overseas have experienced almost routinely. And then somebody reminded me of some of my experiences. And they're all experiences of loss rather than added pain, if you will. And so I agreed to tackle the topic. And, and it's interesting to me, and I've titled my message today, Suffering Loss. It's interesting when we celebrate Lent, the most common question we ask someone is, what are you giving up for Lent? No one ever says, how long are you going to flagellate yourself this year? But if you're in Italy or Spain or the Philippines or Portugal, that's what they do in Lent. They celebrate the passion, the pain of the cross. Whereas we celebrate loss, which is equally true. And as I look at these verses in Philippians chapter 2, it really is a matter of Jesus' loss long before he suffered the anguish of the cross in Gethsemane. First of all, he lost, if you will, equality with God. He emptied himself of any evident glory and majesty that he had in heaven. He became obedient to death even the death on the cross. And so his experience before the cross was one of loss, one of losing things, giving up things. The marvelous thing about Christ's experience is he did it voluntarily. My story is suffering from loss too, but I went all the way kicking and screaming. I didn't want any of it. Now maybe that's understandable because the first loss I experienced was when I was nine months old. So I guess it's natural. I should be kicking and screaming. 
But my parents took me from Canada to Nigeria, 19 whatever it was. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. This month I'm going to be 70. And I had somebody tell me, you know, you haven't changed a twig in the last 20 years. And all they're saying is I looked, I was 70, and I was 50. <laughs> it's not a compliment at all. You know? So anyway. So in going to Nigeria, I lost my country in a very real sense. My three siblings, in fact, have passports saying they were born in Nigeria. At least I was born on furlough, and I have a Canadian passport from birth. But after 11 years in Nigeria, I became that famous acronym TCK, Third Culture Kid. And in a sense, I lost my Canadian culture. It was revived a bit on Sunday afternoon, I can assure you, but uh, when we won the gold medal. But really, I think I could have cheered for the States as well. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Broaden your horizons. So first I lost my country, then I lost my culture, and then my parents. Because when they returned to Nigeria for a third term, the mission we were with, which shall remain unnamed, dictated that if there's no school for children, you leave them in boarding school in Canada. So for the next five years, from the age of 11 to 16, I was in a boarding school in Collingwood. And I lost my parents. When they returned to Canada, I enrolled in the University of Toronto in a rather ambitious program. I wasn't good at sports, still not. Wasn't good, really, in high school or university at extracurricular activities. The one thing I had going with me was I could ace exams. And I was really a great intellectual, I tell you. <laughs> and that was true until my third year of a triple major, maths, physics, and chemistry, when I flunked one exam out of nine, and I was expelled from the faculty of the University of Toronto, Faculty of Arts. Well, there went my integrity, my pride, my academic satisfaction, self-image, everything totally destroyed. And the only way I survived that period of my life was because there was a young woman who loved me. We made it through those years. We went together to India for the first time. And she became, I have to say, the entire center of my life, the anchor of my self-image, the support in every kind of trial. And she was absolutely the center of my life until 1994, when after 29 years of marriage, she died of multiple myeloma. And once again, my world came crashing down. And in my searing pain, I said to God, okay, you've done it all. From here on in, you can do anything you want. And by your grace, I'll survive. So he did. And three years ago, he took my son, my youngest son, not to death, but to cocaine addiction. And we're struggling with that now. He's taken his rehab and done well at it. He's back on his feet, but only tenuously. And he will remain a coke addict for the rest of his life because he has an addictive personality. And, and rightly, you might say, but, but with all those losses, surely there were compensating gains. And there really were. There were. You know, he took my country away, but I feel comfortable in virtually any country. In the last six weeks, I've been in Nepal and Thailand and France and Monaco 
and England and Canada. And I felt I could stay in any one of those countries for the rest of my life, perfectly happily. So he gave me many countries in exchange for the one country. What about culture? I feel perfectly comfortable comfortable in intercultural situations because as a third culture kid, that's what you are. You're, you're sort of a global kind of culture person. And there's a certain ease in anywhere in the world. The loss of my wife brought into my life my present wife, Carol. And that's been a real blessing to both of us. She lost her first husband, also to cancer, from the staff of Tyndale, actually. But you know, if you asked me, I would give up all those compensations to have back the original things I had. National Film Board made a film some years ago about a young boy having to leave the farm and go to Winnipeg during the, the drought in Manitoba in the 30s. And at one point he says this, looking straight at the camera, all I ever wanted was what I always had. And I feel that way. All I ever wanted, I was content. The Lord had blessed me. I had a rich life. All I wanted was what I already had. But God chose otherwise. And today I accept with thanksgiving both what he has taken away and what he has given me as we have just finished singing. I could sing that sincerely. So what have I learned from suffering loss through all this? And I have to tell you, not much. Not much. I I tell you that... Suffering, to me, is an impenetrable mystery. And I'm aware of what, I think it was Voltaire said, you know, don't share your doubts with me. I have enough doubts of my own. Share your convictions. And I promise I'll end up with some convictions. But I have to tell you, I don't know that much about suffering. And yet, I feel it's right that I should be talking to you this morning. It remains for me a great mystery as to why it happens, what God has and accomplishes through it. But one thing I learned through my experience is it's impossible to compare my suffering with yours. And you can't compare your suffering with anybody else's. Don't ever minimize what God is calling you to go through. And don't exaggerate what God calls other people to go through. Because apparently grace is of such a nature that he carefully calibrates your pilgrimage with your personality and your character. And he gives you enough that you learn things and not too much that you can't cope. So I've learned that, and that's a blessing. But I want to share some three things with you that I've concluded, come to, as deep, deep convictions of mine. My challenge is, I'm not sure I can make a connection between my experience of suffering and why these convictions have become so unshakable in my life. But they are there, And I share them with you. Number one, God is sovereign. And I am absolutely dependent on him for every grace and every spiritual victory. Now again, it's hard to connect suffering because some people lose their faith when they enter into suffering. That wasn't my experience. I was reminded of uh, an incident when we were in Pakistan. The then president, Ziel Haq, turned Pakistan, which was a second republic, into the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. And shortly thereafter, there was a delegation from the People's Republic of China who wanted to visit Pakistan and see what this wonderful new thing was that Zeal Huck had brought about. And the story is told that at the end of their visit, 
while they were saying their farewells, they said to President Zielhuk, they said, well, you have convinced us that Allah really does exist. And he was really proud of that. He thought, well, let's find an explanation of this. And why do you say that? He turned to the Chinese delegation. And they said, well, it's clear nobody else is in charge here. Only God could be. But you know, there's a certain truth to that. The unpredictability of suffering, the inequity of it, the, the, the mysteriousness of it, the perplexity of suffering, drives me to say there is only one person who understands, who is in charge, who is in control, and in fact, who will work things out. And that is the sovereign God of the universe. My faith was deepened. And even though I couldn't make that connection between what I experienced and what I now conclude, I assure you, it's there. It's true. And that is what Easter is all about. It, somehow this sovereign God always brings glory out of shame. He brings good out of evil. We see it in the cross, and we see it throughout history. In fact, I was told that recently, well, some years ago, recently in my life, could be anything up to 50 years, but some, some years ago, Christian historians met together at a conference in Chicago, and the task they set themselves was, as historians, competent Historians, how can we demonstrate where God is clearly at work in history? And that's a tough problem, because almost everything can be explained away. And Roland Bainton, then the dean of the Christian historians in North America, concluded that where you know God is working is where good comes from evil. Interesting. And I think it's probably true. I've seen it over and over again. But that is what Easter is. And God alone can do that. We are told to overcome evil with good. And that's what God himself does. The second conviction I have in the depths of my soul is that suffering has given me an unshakable hope in resurrection and justice, God's justice. This world is so clearly full of suffering of all kinds. We just came through an earthquake in Chile, after an earthquake in Haiti, after an earthquake in China, after an earthquake in Pakistan, on and on it goes, tsunamis and, and things. Clearly, this is not the shalom that God has promised to his people. Clearly, life on this earth is a veil of tears. There has to be something more, something good, something beautiful. And I would say that any experience of suffering I have had has just driven me to the promises of God in his word, that he will judge all the earth. He will rule in righteousness. Wrongs will be righted. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In the meantime, we have to live in Easter Saturday. We've seen the crucifixion. We've seen the suffering. The resurrection is yet to come. And so we live out our days in Easter Saturdays and look forward to that day of resurrection when all the world will be transformed. May I suggest to you that without suffering and your personal experience of suffering, the hope of heaven and the hope of an eternity in the presence of God is a theological construct. It's, it's almost theoretical. And it's only suffering that drives us 
to feel it as real as today. At least that's my experience. And I would say to you, that's the experience of many of my friends in Nepal and Pakistan and elsewhere who have been oppressed and afflicted. That hope of resurrection is as tangible to them as today's events. The third conviction I have in the depths of my soul is that Christ is present in our sufferings more than at any other time. That's my experience. And I'm sure it's yours. And his presence is far more than just the comfort he brings to us in, in the fellowship of sufferings. His presence actually transforms suffering into something holy. Not despicable, not evil, but in fact holy. In fa- one of the, the choice hymns that God gave to me uh, when my wife died was How Firm a Foundation. The third verse, which interesting, I was looking up to get the exact words in two of the hymn books that I looked up. It didn't have this third verse in it. And to me, it's the best verse of all. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. That's what grabbed me. He sanctifies to us our deepest distress. He makes it something holy, almost beautiful in his purposes, as ugly as it is on its own. Jesus' presence sanctifies suffering and makes it a holy thing, something that draws us closer to God and makes us more like Christ. But I want to suggest there's something even more than that in Christ's presence. When Christ is present in our sufferings, he actually transforms suffering into something better. Because he suffered, the very character of suffering changes. It is not just a painful thing. It is not an ugly thing. It is not something to escape or to avoid. Nor is it something to welcome. But because he suffered, suffering has a certain weight and significance and dignity because he himself suffered on our behalf. And in some mysterious way, we partake, we participate in his sufferings. Philippians 3, chapter 10. There's an even more perplexing Verse, Colossians 1.24, where Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, said, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Would anybody here like to volunteer to tell me what is lacking in Christ's sufferings? I don't know. I don't know. But I would suggest to you that what this suggests is that God, in some mysterious way, collaborates with us through suffering to accomplish the purposes which he ordained in Christ's suffering. And somehow together, we work out in the church, in his body, what he wants to accomplish. That is is a marvelous understanding of God's purposes. He loves us so much. He invites us into even this redeeming work and collaborates with us in accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. Suffering is not wasted when we understand that God sanctifies it and glorifies himself through it. I want to close with just reference to a story that Eli Wiesel, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author of the novel Night, 
gives, a scene he paints for us in the concentration camp. And the story he tells is of, of one day when three people were taken by the SS guards and hung as an example to the rest of the camp. And as the three men, two men and one boy, were hanging by their necks, all the camp was forced to walk by and take a close look at it. Then came the march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive. Their tongues were hanging out, swollen and bluish. But the third rope was still moving. The child, he was 13 years old, was too light, and he was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. And we were forced to look at him at close range. He was still alive when I passed him. His tongue was still red, his eyes not yet extinguished. Behind me, I heard a man asking, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where, hanging here from this gallows. Now you and I take something very different from that than Elie Wiesel did. He said, never again will I believe in God. For him, God died on those gallows in that concentration camp. But in saying that, for those of us who believe, who understand what the cross is about, it becomes as a profound truth. Where is God in our suffering? He is with us. He partakes in our sufferings, even as we, by his grace, participate in Christ's suffering. How could God allow such a thing to happen? He doesn't. He participates it in himself. He is right there with us, sanctifying our experience, giving us comfort, and transforming something, transforming suffering into something eternally significant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we've already been singing, we give you our heart, we give you our soul, we give you our suffering, and all that you bring our way. Lord, by your grace, sanctify whatever suffering people are experiencing this day. Help us to see beyond our present experience to the truth that we know in Christ. As we approach Easter and celebrate the wonderful day of resurrection, so, Father, we pray that you give us that perspective on the troubles and the pain and the loss that we might experience this day. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Go in peace, and the God of peace go with you. Amen.